Marhaba, and welcome to the Matrix Green Pill, where real people connect. Hello, and welcome back to the Matrix Green Pill podcast. I'm Ilmri Hutchison, and today I'm excited to have Prantik Mazumda as my guest on the show. Prantik is an entrepreneur and venture investor and acts as a digital transformation catalyst in organizations to drive sustainable change and impact. He's a regular columnist for Marketing Magazine, Campaign Asia, Economic Times, and Business Times on all things digital transformation and marketing and has trained over 500 enterprises in the region on this subject. Apart from his corporate role, he's an active angel and venture investor mentor, advisor, and speaker. Prantik, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Elmeri, for having me on this podcast. I love the name. I've heard some episodes. So it's indeed a pleasure and I'm looking forward to our chat. Thank you very much. Some of our listeners will definitely already know you and your story, but for those who don't, could you please introduce yourself? Certainly. So as you were introducing myself, you know, you've got me covered. I'm someone, a third culture kid who's an Indian by nationality. I had my childhood in, in India. Then I did my high schooling in Indonesia, in Jakarta. My family moved there for the last 20 years. I've been in Singapore, this fascinating utopian city-state where I came to study. I did my bachelor's degree here. And then I worked for the Singapore government, one of the most progressive technocratic governments out there in APAC. And uh, thereafter, I worked for a couple of small medium enterprises, a, a startup uh, and a B2B brand consulting firm before starting up on my own in the digital marketing and digital transformation space. I had a lovely 12-year journey with a co-founder who's the original founder. We have built a team of 60 plus people before uh, selling the business to a, a global advertising conglomerate called Densu, which uh, emerged out of Japan 100 years ago, over 100 years. And it was indeed a privilege to be part of that network. And uh, I'm still very much an integral part of the Densu network. I lead one of the business units in Singapore. Outside of that, I do have my interests and inclination towards the startup world. So I am an active venture investor, advisor to startups. Outside of that, uh, I'm married. My wife is a doctor and I have a five and a half year old kid who keeps me entertained, engaged and happy. You started off doing your studies as a computer engineer. Is that right? That's right, Elmeri. I studied computer engineering. That was my major. I did a minor in uh, techpreneurship. So that was part of the Singapore government's plan to kind of get young students in university, you know, educated and excited about the possibilities of being an entrepreneur in a technological domain. When I introduced you, I mentioned about you being a digital transformation catalyst in organizations to drive sustainable change and impact. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? Explain what that means and what do you actually do? Absolutely. So, you know, the word digital means different things for different people. You know, when I speak to people, some people think of digital as a television a digital TV, something of a digital lock, something of digital marketing, something of digital ebook. When I say digital transformation, it is really a mindset to transform a particular process which has been physical in nature. By digitally transforming, what you really mean is, can I do the same thing in a more efficient, digital, mobile-friendly manner? A classic example would be sending letters by post. Emails made it digital. So that was digitally transformed. Newspapers, books, magazines have become digital. That's digital transformation. Your finances, your payments, your banking, that's digital transformation. Any and every field that today, you know, as common people, digital transformation is really about trying to bring in efficiency and effectiveness 
at scale to do the same job or same task at hand, but using technology. So when I say I'm a catalyst, you know, my role in my organization is to talk to business owners and companies and clients and try and help them understand how can they grow, scale and make their businesses more efficient using digital technology. So that's how I kind of classify myself being a digital transformation catalyst. And what would you say are the biggest obstacles to digital transformation? The single biggest obstacle is mindset and political will. The very fact that the word has transformation in it, which means change. And we humans are not particularly well geared towards change or transformation of any kind because it makes us uncomfortable. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of thinking and doing things differently. So that's the biggest challenge. So one is, you know, we need to find an internal catalyst, an internal champion who kind of buys into that vision or buys into the whole philosophy that, you know, there is a core reason to change. That's the biggest challenge and roadblock is how do I find one or two internal champions who are in sync with me, aligned with me in terms of the why, the reason to change. Because if that's clear, if there is one or two people who buy into that, then it's relatively a bit easier to kind of percolate that message downstream in an organization. Right. So as you say, it's a mindset because I think for many people, it would be a matter of don't fix it if it's not broken. Yep. And of course, it would take a great deal of investment to make changes, to make a digital transformation in the upfront cost will be high but in the long run you probably would be able to explain that better the difference between the investment upfront and the benefit long term yeah you know and i'll kind of take a couple of steps back and you're right absolutely and the reason for that is you rightly mentioned that people don't want to rock the boat or change something that's not broken what happens is something may not be broken immediately you may think that all is going well the globalization forces the technological forces sometimes are not visible upfront they is indirect competition. You think you're doing fine, but before you realize, something suddenly changes. It's The change is slow, gradual. The attack is slow and gradual. It's your classic Nokia moment. It's your classic Sony Walkman moment where, you know, the Walkmans never thought that they'll go out of business till iPod came in and completely unraveled itself. Nokia never thought it's going to go out of business, but look at what happened when an iPhone and apps came out into the picture. So it's the change is slow and gradual, but when it hits, it hits you hard. So that's what businesses and business leaders need to be prepared for. And you're right, any sort of change needs planning, needs a prioritized roadmap. And that includes, you know, identifying budgets and people. And within budget, yes, certain things will be heavy capital investment, which means upfront investment. But you can't look for short-term gains because when you're transforming certain things, you will have to take a long-term vision. And when I say long-term, three, five, seven years, because if you have a big shift, if you want to change direction, it takes time to change the rudder, it takes time and effort to change direction. It needs that push. It needs that heavy investment and certain investments that will be recurring over time. But it needs to be looked at as an investment and not as a cost because it is you're kind of doing this because there has to be or the aim has to be to drive returns, monetary returns in the long run. Right. And I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the most dangerous things to do is to think, well, we'll save the money now and not make the investment because in the long run, you'll miss out completely. You'll miss the boat, so to speak, when because things are changing all the time. And if you're not willing to look forward and make those changes, be transforming all the time, you're going to get left behind, no doubt. Let's talk a little bit about your role as a marketer, because in 2015, you were recognized as one of the top 50 most influential marketers in the world. Can you tell us about that? 
Absolutely. It was a very privileged moment. Came out of the blue and I guess that's what made it very special. I very well remember the particular week in mid-February in uh, 2014 where uh, I suddenly got a call and said, someone told me that, hey, look, we are hosting the event in Mumbai in India, which made it doubly special because my family, my parents lived pretty close to Mumbai in a city called Pune where I had my formative years. So I was very excited to get a chance to meet them, go back home and uh, be part of this event. And it was exciting because my parents uh, and one of my uncles uh, dear uncles they had the chance to come to the event and see me as well and this was basically you know a world marketing congress event where some of fairly well known names you know either marketers from large brands like visa mastercard starbucks as well as folks like myself who came from the marketing services agency side they basically had submissions that a independent panel evaluated and they picked 50 of us and that was indeed a very privileged moment uh, and a very special moment in life indeed especially to receive that uh, with my parents watching congratulations that is certainly a, a fantastic achievement so congratulations on that thank you you mentioned earlier that you are an advisor for startups let's talk a little bit about that your role and how how you help um, startups Okay, you know, if I look at my 20-year career, whether it was my education and, and at the National University of Singapore, whether it was working for Singapore government or the two startups I worked for before starting up on my own, the common thread has been I've always been linked to the startup ecosystem of Singapore, Southeast Asia, and India in some way. During college days, we were being taught in the technical entrepreneurship program about startups. I was interning there during my government days. My job, my role was to help startups internationalize, and thereafter, I've been an employee and a business owner of a startup myself. When we sold the business to Denso, and I became part of Denso, which is obviously a large conglomerate with a fascinating set of capabilities and experience, some part of my heart was missing the startup experience, and I wanted to vicariously live the founder life. So, with that in context, and with my desire to kind of stay connected to the startup ecosystem, because in Southeast Asia the startup ecosystem is booming. There's massive amounts of funding. There are new ideas coming up left, right, and center. So I said, you know what? I want to keep some time aside for this, and I've been quite fortunate over the last three years. I've broken down my time into you know outside of my core role at Denso I've kept aside some of my evenings and weekends to spend time doing three or four things one is I do directly invest in some early stage companies in these markets in the categories of fintech edtech health tech i do advise some founders who may find that useful and valuable and i'll touch upon that in a bit i do associate myself with a few venture capital institutions where i could potentially help uh, some of their portfolio companies and lastly i'm part of uh, a couple of organizations one is insiad and the other is tai in fact both of them have a base in dubai as well where it's a pro bono effort i'm part of their boards where i again mentor and advise either existing founders or people who are looking to start up you asked me about advisory the advisory is really there are two broad categories one is fairly structured where a founder says hey look i need one to two hours of your time every month to just understand digital marketing better or i want to understand sales better or the other is a bit more open ended which is to be honest what i really enjoy these are founder conversations which are open which could be about work could be about fundraising could be about organization culture or it could be about personal topics because people don't realize that you know entrepreneurship is quite a lonely hard act and there are mental health issues founders could have you know challenges with friends and family with social life and sometimes just being there as a shoulder or as just lending ears to listen to them sometimes could be useful because you are exchanging notes you're learning from each other so that's what my advisory in my advisory capacity that's what i do to me honestly it's been a fascinating learning experience 
it's also like i mentioned earlier it gives me a chance to live the founder life vicariously whilst i am uh, running a division in a large conglomerate that's lovely to hear that you are giving back of your experience to help others um, starting out based on your experience what do you think are some of the biggest challenges for startups and for entrepreneurs you know whilst i genuinely believe that it's never been better or easier to be a founder just given the societal acceptance given the funding options available uh, the talent options available or the technological advancement we have seen in the world i think the biggest challenge is a couple of things the usual answer would be about scaling up and fundraising which is true those are challenges for sure they are part and parcel of any founder's life i think the two challenges that i find you know quite difficult to define and overcome hence is how do you build a good team how do you build a culture because that's an intangible you know money fund is difficult but it's tangible you can either get a loan or you can raise money from your friends family or you know you can initially find some from your own savings but to be able to attract good people and retain them and then create this team and bonds where you kind of create a culture of excellence that's hard that takes a lot of time that takes a lot of deliberation that takes a lot of experimentation and it's hard organization building and culture i think that's one the other is the emotional aspect of scaling up as a founder as you scale up over time you need to sort of let go you need to get people smarter than you you need to delegate and i think that's hard because a startup is something you've created and nurtured for the first like for 3 5 6 years and then when you have to let go i think the emotional part is much harder so to me the elements of culture and emotion which are again intangible emotional elements i think those are interesting but difficult challenges to surmount that's excellent insight and absolutely spot on i can hear why you would say that those are big challenges what advice would you give to a young entrepreneur who is wanting to creating a startup there are a couple of things that come to mind when i speak to young entrepreneurs is one is you know conviction i think it's very important to have a strong conviction about the problem set or the category that one is trying to disrupt or a problem that one is trying to solve because as they say there could be 900 reasons to not do a startup or 900 reasons to not uh, venture out on your own because obviously the risks are high and the odds are stacked against you but if you have a strong conviction if you have one good reason to do this and that you think can make a difference to a particular customer or a cohort of customers i think that's important so that conviction i think why would genuinely you know encourage entrepreneurs to kind of hone their points of view and their conviction because especially when times are tough it's your conviction that helps you sail through those when people don't believe you or people don't want to support you the other is having an open mind to bring in uh co-founders because you yes you can be a solo founder but it gets even tougher so i would urge entrepreneurs to look for at least one if not two co-founders who are attached to the hip in terms of values they are aligned to your values but bring in complementary skill set because i think if you have that have aligned on common values taking decisions can be easier and you can take quick decisions but having diversified or complementary skill sets just you know helps you do focus on different things and will just make your you know make your journey hopefully that much easier and uh, more fun because again the success or failure is not in your control the odds are against you but you want to ensure that the journey is at least an interesting and a memorable one and i think good co-founders could potentially uh, help you in on, in that regard wow i think that's excellent advice i think so many of us think that you have to go at it alone and to be an entrepreneur you have to be the one making all the decisions but i think having others as you say who have who are aligned with your own values will give you a much broader way to 
tackle the problems and make you that much more, stack the odds to be successful. I think that is excellent advice. Now, you had mentioned earlier that you directly invest in some startup companies. How do you decide which ventures to invest in? Fantastic question. And, you know, it's something that I ponder and think and read about a lot. And when I started doing this, honestly, I did not have a roadmap or a a framework, if you will. But now that I've done a bit and I look back, I think I do find some patterns. I do sort of introspect and say, hey, why did I invest in A and not B? And so I'll share a few questions that I try and answer myself when I meet a founder or I look at a pitch deck from a startup because usually these are early stage, right? So there isn't a lot of revenue or they're not really very well known. So a few things that I do and I realize I do this answering to myself from a risk mitigation perspective because again, by default, it's a, a risky asset class. So you've got to, and again, it's an art and a science. There's no way to know for sure. Only time will tell. But I think a few things that I would urge anyone that wants to look into angel investing. A, how well do you resonate with the problem that the company is trying to solve? Because again, you know, someone could be doing a great job in healthcare, but maybe that's not something that resonates with you. That's not something you understand or you're interested in. And then I wouldn't look further. But if that's a problem that you emotionally connect and resonate with and you think it's important, I think that's important. The second thing I would do is deep dive and understand from the founder, why is he or she or the founding team, why are they so passionate about the problem? I would want to have a deeper conversation to see can they hold ground for a deeper meaningful conversation or is it just an academic exercise or are they just doing this because it's cool? I think if you have two or three conversations, you'll kind of get a good sense. You can kind of differentiate between founders who have a surface level understanding versus a deeper understanding. And what's their emotional connection? I found, I like founders who have a personal reason that why they are trying to go behind this because again it's that conviction it's that emotional connect which will help them in my opinion be resilient and stick through especially when times are hard and there will be difficult times so that's one second is I want to then look at the financials of how big is this market size how big is this particular domain or the problem that they are trying to solve because if the market is not big enough if the, if the addressable market is not big enough then it's not exciting and when I say big enough in absolute terms as well as vis-a-vis competition so is this a red ocean or a blue ocean idly I would want to be in a large blue ocean, which, you know, where there is not too much competition. So that's the second thing I would try and look and analyze. I've never invested in a company that does not have a product. No matter how rudimentary, I would still want to touch and feel and see the product. And ideally, I would want them to have some revenue, not profit per se, but some revenue. Because if they have some revenue, which means, you know, there is some sort of a product market fit, which means a client is willing to give you a chance to use it and they're willing to open their wallets for the product. Doesn't have to be big money. In fact, to me, the quality of the revenue matters, which means I'm not looking for a company which has 10 clients. I'd rather them have just two clients, but hopefully they've given some repeat business, which means repeat business recurring revenue is an indicator that the customer is happy to give you not just one shot, but maybe two or three shots. So these are three or four things, the emotional connect and conviction of the founders, the market size of the blue ocean, potentially the product and the quality of the revenue. And lastly, since I earlier spoke about co-founders, I also want to see how is the organization structured? Who is responsible for what is the equity structure between co-founders? Because very often I've seen where one founder has 90% and the other two have 5% each. And that's not a healthy sign because that shows potentially that something's not right. If someone's too greedy, I would rather, you know, have, I'm not saying it has to be equitable, 33, 33, 33. I'm okay if it's 60, 20, 20, because each of these co-founders should have a decent skin in the game because, you know, that's when people have skin in the game. That's when they're likely to kind of put in uh, more effort beyond the pitch deck, beyond the product. These are things I would look for 
And these are hard to assess unless you spend quality time, you know, over three to five meetings with the founder, founding teams, and maybe idly speak to one or two of their customers. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is so in-depth and absolutely makes sense. Thank you for that. Now, you have done a lot already. You have accomplished a lot. What is on the horizon for you? Anything exciting that you are working on or looking forward to? Yeah, something that, you know, my wife and I, we uh, speak about because, you know, she's finishing her medical residency. She's an active in the emergency and our residency finishes in a few months time. My, you know, I'm at a juncture where I'm kind of thinking about what next that I've sold the business. I've uh, had a good experience with Dentsu, the conglomerate. Now, whether it's, you know, within Dentsu, whether it's outside, I'm not sure of the structure, but I think there are two things in my mind which keep bubbling up and I want to find a way to solve for that. You know, I have built a startup. I've sold the startup. I work for a large company now. So one thing in my mind is now that I've done some angel direct investments as an individual, I think one thing in my mind is, you know, do I want to set up a fund? Do I want to invest large in a much larger scale along with other partners and friends? That's one. The other, which is very close to both my wife and I, minds and heart is what I'll sum it up as equitable opportunities or equitable access. Because both of us grew up in India, Indonesia, emerging markets, and we were fairly privileged to have good access to good education, healthcare, a good nurturing environment. And and uh, thereafter, we've uh, you know enjoyed the benefits of a global city, Singapore. When we look at our lives, I think the common thread there is access to equitable opportunity. We feel privileged that the dice uh, rolled out on the right side. If we did have access to education, healthcare, and opportunities, all of this would not happen. Since we grew up in emerging markets like India and Indonesia, which are burgeoning economies, there's so much potential, but there is still a lot of poverty. There is still a lot of disparity between the haves and have-nots. So something that we are quite particular about is either as investors or in form of a, a startup, we want to solve for education and healthcare. She comes from a healthcare background. I'm quite passionate about education and education, not for the sake of learning, but education that leads to equitable opportunity or access to opportunity, some sort of a way for people to kind of make money. And I think the digital world allows for various ways for solving for that. You don't have to necessarily take the the route that let's say many of us have taken that is you know go to school and college and master's degree and you know do the whole round you can there are various interesting opportunities where people could be in a village people could be in a town people could be in cities but technology could allow them to capitalize and monetize on skills that they have you could be a singer a musician you could be a dancer you could be a content creator you could be a coder you could be a financial advisor but i think there are opportunities untapped where you could leverage technology to kind of express yourself, to build something, to sell and market your skills. So I don't have a clear answer, but I think the two big pockets of opportunities, either as an investor and or a startup founder, the goal is to solve for equitable access and opportunity. That sounds so exciting. And with your background, with your experience, I think you will absolutely find the right fit. And it's fantastic that you're wanting to give back to the community and solve for a problem that a very large population of people face. That's fantastic. This finishes this first segment of our show. So thank you very much for sharing your knowledge and your experience with us. Now we've come to the segment of our show where I'll ask you a few rapid fire questions, our version of a game show. Are you ready? All right, let's hit the buzzer. I'll set for it. Is there a particular book that's made a significant impact on you? Yes, the author is C.K. Prahlad, a management guru. 
and uh, the book is called the bottom of the pyramid which basically talks about you know if you look at the world population of 7 to 7.5 billion people bulk of the world is still extremely poor uh, whether it's in india south asia africa a bit of china indonesia latin america but there is massive potential there and the book really talks about that you know you can do good but doesn't have to be a charity you can build businesses that serve their needs yet make money so you know my whole philosophy around equitable opportunity i think comes uh, stems a lot from uh, that particular book which uh, really changed my perspective what's the best compliment you've ever gotten I think the best compliment that I've got is from my team at Happy Marketer where as a fact that I do listen and I empathize and that they can relate to me and have an open conversation. I think it always feels good when you hear that from your teammates that you know that you're accessible that you're you know, that you can be a normal human being and have normal human daily conversations that feels quite good. Describe yourself in five words. Optimist, believer, doer. I'll spare two words, probably three words. Optimist, believer, doer. Fantastic. And what is one thing you do every day no matter how busy you are? I try and read about 25 to 30 pages. I don't stop this. I try and and when I say 25 30 pages it doesn't have to be from a book. It can be magazines, articles, whatever. I do spend, you know, either by pages or by time. I would spend about 45 to 60 minutes reading. But what I try and do after the reading is I try and connect dots to kind of form my point of view. And it goes back to my previous point of building an opinion or a conviction. Just reading alone wouldn't satisfy me, but what I try and I urge my colleagues to do the same is read consume as much as possible or do form a crystal clear point of view which is your own opinion it's your point of view that's something that i try and do pretty much every day i love that that's excellent before we wrap up i'd like to ask you about your green pill moment so if you could take the green pill and start over would you go about things differently i love this concept of a green i don't think i would go about things very differently but i would definitely do one thing differently is i would start earlier when i say start earlier start the whole entrepreneurial journey and my investment journey i would start earlier and the reason i say this is because you know be it investments be it entrepreneurship there are pitfalls risks and roadblocks and fail you will the only question is the longer you do the longer you keep repeating you hopefully get better at something hopefully you make less mistakes and you let the power of compounding work in your favor so in investment right a huge fan of the book psychology of money where morgan housel writes about everyone talks about warren buffet and his ability to pick companies but very few people talk about the fact that nearly 90% of his wealth today came after his 65th birthday and that is because he started at the age of 10 so he's given himself time to champion something to master something for compounding to work and the other is entrepreneurship you know maybe your first idea will fail maybe your second idea will fail maybe you'll take a corporate job and you know you'll save up and you'll build a network and you'll come back but maybe you'll give yourself a bit more time and other chance only thing that i would do differently and that's my advice to everyone is to start earlier So the earlier that you start the the sooner you can fail the sooner you can learn and build bigger things so that's excellent beautiful advice thank you so much Prantik for being here today your knowledge and your um tips and your advice has been excellent i've really enjoyed learning from you and hearing everything that you've done so thank you very much for having been here i really enjoyed this conversation likewise elmeri i mean thank you for having me and making me comfortable it felt like a good coffee conversation uh, and again thank you for doing this uh, the whole podcast series uh, sharing these stories i'm sure the stories is what makes us human so thank you for kind of facilitating that process it's been a pleasure to be on your show thank you very much now before we say goodbye could you please tell our listeners where they can find and follow you and we'll also put this in the show notes certainly i think the easiest way to find me is on linkedin so if you just search my name prantik space mazumdar on linkedin you'll find me there you can follow me there drop me a text uh, on a linkedin message and uh, i'll be sure to reply excellent thank you very much and thank you again for joining me today i wish you all 
the very best. Mary, thank you so much. If you enjoy our conversations, please like and subscribe. See you next Wednesday.